Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our podcast offers friendly conversations with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by Learn Behavioral and the Learn Provider Network. Now, here's your host. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of All Autism Talk, brought to you by the Learn Behavioral Network, a leading provider in ABA services across the country. I'm really excited this week because I had an opportunity to sit down with Dr. Fred Volkmer. We sat down to talk about his latest publication and iteration of his book, but there were so many topics we had to discuss that were so interesting. Dr. Volkmer has over 40 years experience and what stands out immediately is one, his knowledge, but two, his enthusiasm, not only for the community, but for the research that supports this community. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Dr. Volkmer, thank you so much for being here. It's great to have you on the show this week. Thank you for having me. I, I have a bunch of questions for you, but I want to start with, uh, you've been in the field for over 40 years. Um, can you tell us how diagnostic tools and service offerings have changed over that time? It's really been a sea change in many respects. And uh, I'll give you the short version of what could be a very long story. When I first got into the field, people didn't even know what the word meant. When people would ask me, because I moved from Stanford to finish my uh, clinical training at Yale and specifically to work in the area of autism uh, with somebody who was at Yale and people would say, why'd you move? And I would say, well, I, I want to work in the area of autistic children. And they would say, oh, that's wonderful. We need more childhood artists. They misheard the word as artist. And so people didn't know what the word was. Okay. And at that point, autism had just been officially recognized as a diagnosis in 1980, which is when I moved. Before that, it was termed childhood schizophrenia, which you'll forgive the pun was totally crazy. And uh, so there was very limited research before that. After 1980, everything started to change. We got better in terms of looking at ways to diagnose children at a younger age, although that still is an area of very active interest and research, which we can come back to. Uh, But we also started getting better looking at treatments. And what had happened, just sort of a little tiny bit of the history on this, in the 1970s, the reason autism got recognized in 1980 was three, three, three or four things, really, but fundamentally a couple of things. One was the recognition that autism was a brain-based disorder. People had misassumed, had, had, taken the, had, mis, had mistaken uh, in the 50s and 60s the notion that parents were very successful of the first children described as autism as somehow the parents caused autism. It's a complicated, crazy reason of why they did that, but that's what people assumed. So they gave everybody concerned psychotherapy, which did no good. In the 1970s, it became clear structured teaching was helpful, not unstructured psychotherapy. It also became clear autism was brain-based. As we followed children with autism over time, about 20% developed seizures, <coughs> recurrent, epilep- recurrent seizures or epilepsy. So there's something going on in the brain. And the other thing in the late 70s was that autism clearly was very strongly genetic. 
So all those things kind of converged to say, okay, autism is its own thing. People also did research to show that it was not at all the same thing as schizophrenia. Childhood schizophrenia is actually very, very, very rare, much less common than autism. So autism got its own category. It got recognized. It took off like a rocket. As a result, people started developing better treatments. And uh, this had started in the 70s because parents had trouble getting schools to take their children. That started to change as the government, the United States government, uh, passed in the, I think, 1975 Public Law 94142, the Education of the Handicapped Act. And all of a sudden, there was a mandate for schools that any child who walked through the door after age three got a free and appropriate education. This was like all of a sudden, oh, my God. Before that time, schools could say, we can't take this child. And many kids with autism did not get an education. So after that, all these things converged at around the same time. So the field kind of took off like a rocket. It's so interesting because some of those things that you're mentioning that were happening in the 70s are still very much at the forefront of research and ongoing uh, topics of discussion today, right? You mentioned diagnostics, you mentioned treatment, you mentioned uh, genetics, you know, has research evolved along with uh, along with practice? Absolutely. And, you know, the interesting thing, one of my one of my many hats is I edit a journal, the oldest one in the field called the Journal of Autism and Developmental Disorders. I've done that for, I guess, about 15 years now. And when I first took over, we only published, I'm going to say, every couple of months. And we had about 300 papers submitted every year. And this is a peer reviewed journal. So we didn't take everything right. Uh, last year, partly reflecting also craziness of COVID, but we had something like 1,200 papers submitted. Wow. Uh, there right now, there's somewhere over 30,000 roughly peer-reviewed scientific papers on autism. It used to be you could keep up with the, the field, just read one or two papers a day. Now, you'd have to read you know between five and 10 papers a day. And this is real science. These are peer-reviewed papers. So that has exploded, which in most senses is good news, except sometimes with that explosion, it's hard to sort of sort stuff out. Well, and, you know, I'm curious with that, how, how much of the research is translating into the practices and homes and schools and in therapeutic settings? Or is that is that a gap that we need to be paying attention to? Well, there's no question it's a gap that we need to pay attention to. And it, it's something I've been uh, concerned with. And it's one of the, the reasons why I've been interested in writing for parents and teachers, as well as being a researcher and a clinician is trying to bridge that gap. Uh, and there are some findings that are kind of pretty straightforward in terms of having some implications for helping parents and teachers understand a bit about autism. I can give you some examples in a, in a second, if you like. But I think it is a continuing challenge because uh, as we've gotten more and more folks from diverse disciplines, genetics, um, uh, I have people doing stem cell research in autism at my place, uh, which is which is great. But they're basic scientists. And the trouble for them is sort of taking what they know and saying, well, does this have any implications or what are the implications? for kids and, and families and teachers and schools. So it's a it's a recurrent issue. And the other thing that we can come back to talk about, we can talk about where the research needs are right now. There's much more of a research focus right now on infants and young children. And that has to do with many things, including the earliest forms of autism and the need to get in there and intervene for many reasons, but including the fact that kids do better with intervention. Uh, so it's a, it's a good news story. There's more work, but 
and the butt is important, it also means there's much less work on adults and there's almost nothing on aging and autism. So we've got a whole population of middle-aged and older people with autism and literally a handful of research papers out of 40,000, you know, 30 to 40,000 research papers, there's you know, 10 or 20 that are concerned with old age and autism. So um, that's an issue. And the other thing is intervention. Intervention studies are the hardest to do. Uh, they're the easiest to shoot down and kill as a reviewer, either at the federal level of NIMH or as a journal reviewer or as a journal editor. Um, Peer-reviewed studies will always have a flaw. They're sort of like good oriental carpets. There's always a flaw because you don't want to offend the almighty by having a perfect thing. And there's always going to be something like that. So treatment studies, they're good. They're improving or having more of them, but they still lag behind other kinds of research. And that's just an important thing to know. There was a lot there and I want to dive into a few different things. But first, Go I want for to it. ask, are, are there things that clinicians and parents can be doing to pay attention to the research? I mean, you, you mentioned 10 articles a day. Not everyone can do that. Right. I, know I certainly can't. Right. What are what are some ways that we can be paying attention to help bridge that gap between the research and the, and the application? Well, the good news, I think a couple things. One is there there are a number of good uh, published resources in the way of books. And I know journal articles articles can be a little challenging sometimes for parents and for teachers sometimes. Uh, There's a great resource if you want to get into it called PubMed. The National Library of Medicine, you can type in autism and anxiety or autism and whatever, and papers will come up. And it's a free resource from the National Library of Medicine. Uh, And often there'll be a PDF file of the paper. And so that's the kind of basic science. The trouble is often parents want something that's a little more generic and general. And so there you have to kind of know who are the good authors and the good books. And that's kind of one of the challenges. And of course, that gets back a little bit to why my wife and I were interested in doing this. Our second version of this book for parents is to update and tell people, hey, these are some good resources. There are many, many, many good resources, but there's more stuff coming out all the time. And the stuff varies from being poor quality to very high quality. And I think one of our jobs as people and the leaders in the field is to really help parents understand how do you know what's good and what's bad, what to pay attention to and what to kind of say, oh my gosh, that's crap. So that um, I think that's been one of the challenges. Yeah, I, I think of so many families who, you know, they, they get a diagnosis of, or they start hearing about autism from their pediatrician or their diagnostician. And the first thing they do is Google search and they come back with, a whole litany of things, you know, a, a fraction of which are evidence-based and, and right. there, are, there are other things that are out there and, and you know, may be helpful. I, I, I can't speak to them, but there are also some that are harmful, right? And, and That's so exactly like, right. And, you know, if you get into it, this is a whole part of what's called evidence-based medicine or evidence-based practice. And it was started by some folks, uh, uh, both, I think, primarily Andy Cochran in the UK, but uh, there's some places that actually do reviews to sort of see what treatments help, what treatments hurt, which ones you can't say. And it's surprising that there are a lot of treatments. I think in Andy Cochran's first thing, maybe 40% of all treatments in medicine helped. 40%, it was unclear, and the rest maybe hurt. So that that's kind of the, the backstop to this. And as you point out, you go to Google, you get millions of hits. 
So how are you going to sort it out? And even, and there's actually published data on this. There's at least a couple of papers. The top 100 websites, and it doesn't matter what search engine you use, of the top 100 websites, there's going to be websites pushing a cure or selling you something that's not going to work for your child. Mm-hmm. And you have to kind of know how to sort that out. Usually the best websites end in .edu and .gov in terms of giving you some kind of quality information. But um, and parents can be confused because people say, oh, we found the cure and you get in and there's all kinds of anecdotes. And of course, there's nothing published. And you say to the people who are putting this out there, well, where's your data? And they say, well, we're too busy curing autism to have the time to to do the science to show that this works. That's a warning sign. Right. right. Promising a cure is a warning sign. Uh, People get confused. They'll say it's a nonprofit. And the reason it's a nonprofit is because the people are taking all the money. Uh, so yeah, that's why they're not making a profit. They're taking all the money. Um, so it's, and it's hard for people who are not well educated about science to know how science works. So this is an area that's of actually great interest and parents often, I think with very young children will use alternative and complementary treatments and, um, they get into that hoping it will be helpful. Often it's diet and sometimes vitamins and other kinds of things. And I think as doctors, as physicians, we need to be very clear with people. We want to hear about those and talk about them. There are some that probably are harmful. And so there I will step in and say, you know what? I would be careful about that one. And I've had parents tell me things like, for example, oh, uh, my kid's gotten really much better since I started the arsenic. And I'm, I, I am sort of quivering inside while I'm being very you know, placid on my exterior and I'm inside. I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I've got to call, you know, the Child Protective Services. Well, it turns out the child's getting about as much arsenic as I'm getting as the coffee I'm drinking right now. Right, right. It's homeopathic. And so there's a lot of stuff. And again, I think the main thing is for parents to feel comfortable talking about it and to know that we actually now have very good evidence based treatments. That's great. I, you know, I encourage families and we've talked about this before on this podcast, but I continue to encourage families, make sure you're communicating with your, uh, with your pediatricians and with your medical providers. It's good to keep them in the loop and share with them what you're doing, what you're trying, what therapies you're involved in, all those things, you know, they're part of your team and continue to share with them. Absolutely. Keep, keep them involved in the process. Dr. Volkmar, I want to go back to something you mentioned, and you mentioned that there's a lot of research being done on infants and young children right now, but there's a gap in research for adults. And I see the same thing happening with uh, with therapies and with services. Do you think those two are connected? Do you, do you think the, the gap in research is leading to or in some ways causing the, the gap in treatment for young adults or for adults and beyond? You know, I think it's a complicated question to sort out. I mean, I think you have to start by saying the good news and the bad news. The good news first. So the good news is with earlier intervention and better treatments, kids are doing better. We have more and more kids going to college. So that's the good news. Now, I have to say, not everybody gets so much better. Even with good treatments, there are some kids who are like rocks. They don't make much change. On the other hand, 
I was just giving a lecture to uh, my uh, one of my classes, my summer class at Yale, and I have a video of a child at two and a half who is just spinning around my office, and he's doing what his mom calls airplanes. He's just got his arms out. looks like he's coming in for a landing at LaGuardia. He's making noise. And he's oblivious to everybody. I've got the same child at 15 doing comedy on national television. Wow. So, you know, and we do see these kids in a typical good treatment study of 60, 70, 80 kids. You will see one or two preschoolers who take off like, you know, the Jeff Bezos rocket. Um, they're zoom, they're gone. And uh, it's great. And they do really well. On the other hand, we have a lot more kids going to college. Uh, I teach part time. I teach at Yale. We have the last I heard a number. We had several students at Yale with autism who identified at Yale College. And several means you have at least double because people don't always identify. And we had 40 students at Southern Connecticut State, where I also teach 40 students who had identified as having autism, which means there's probably 80. So, and that's around the country. Uh, some one of the schools in Texas has 500 uh, kids who've identified as being on the spectrum. So that you know, that's the the good news story is that the bad news story is we don't do such a great job of supporting them in college because we don't have all the research we have with younger kids. A lot of what we do is based on generalizing research from younger populations, for example, with social skills training uh, or other kinds of things with a few exceptions, medications being one, because it's easier to do medication research on older people. Um, but many of the things we're doing, we're just modifying what we know from kids and gearing it up for high school students and adults. Um, so that's kind of a, a funny issue. And the other other problem is compared to every other disability, as my understanding, hearing, deaf, hearing loss, deafness, whatever you want, being in a wheelchair, anybody else who gets through college, they're going to earn like anybody else who gets through college. People with autism who get through college earn at about half the rate you would expect. They're more like high school grads. So, again, there are important exceptions. Some people do remarkably well. A lot of people are underemployed, and we need to think more about that. That, I think, needs to be much more on top of the federal agenda for research, and I think it's a shame that it has not been. The young children, I think it's great. I'm not knocking it whatsoever. It's a fantastic body of work. We can talk more about it. But I think one of the problems is to understand, well, you know, what are the, first of all, what are the needs of these young adults, middle-aged adults and older adults? Adults, where are they? What are they doing? How can we support them? What are the better ways to help them stay in vocational settings? How can we help them train up for jobs? And there's a little bit of work going on in this, but not nearly as much as there should be. I want to come back to that because I, I have I have a question about some future research, but I'm going to save that for just a few minutes. You know, what What I'm really hearing from you is that there's a, there is a lot more opportunity for individuals with autism to go to college. And it sounds like that that's a shift from maybe earlier in your career where individuals didn't have those opportunities. Would when I first got started, yeah, absolutely. When I first got started, it was very rare. I knew one man <laughs> who I still know who had managed to get through college and he's He's employed and he's independent. He lives in his apartment. Um, he's a little on the depressed side, and uh, but he's a great guy. He has some things he does outside of his apartment, but he would like to have more friends. He would like to be more connected with his family members. Uh, it's a complicated story, but he's 
quote unquote, a success and that he's independent and self-sufficient. I think if you were to ask him, he would say, well, the quality of my life is not what I would like it to be. And that's a whole discussion in and of itself. But I think that's something we definitely need to pay attention to. I mean, you know, quality of life is something that we should be determining for ourselves and individuals, individuals with autism should be determining. That's absolutely the case. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, I'm curious if, you know, how many uh, social skill deficits or things like that are really coming into play here? Because I think that sort of gets magnified as you get into the job force and, and start working full time with people, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you know, the, the, uh, I mean, I can give you an endless chapter and verse about uh, about examples of why people with uh, folks have why folks have trouble. That's a person I worked with for many years who I once ran into at the gym at Yale. And at that point, you know, every every silly building, every building at Yale looks like it's a, you know, a monastery or a church. So the gym looks like a big church. So I go in and I've been running and this guy is a runner and he's there and he's taking his shower. This is in a big gym room. And this is somebody I know very well. He's a lovely man. And I've worked with him very hard about getting a job. And I come in to take my shower and he's there taking his shower. Uh, and he looks at me and he's sort of stunned. What, what am I doing there? Cause I'm obviously I'm naked. I'm in this, taking a shower. Uh, cause I've been running. And then he says, Dr. Oprah, what are you doing here? And I say, well, you know, Joe, which is not his real name. Of course I say, Joe, you know, uh, I like to get over here to run. Uh, it's hard to get here from the medical school. It's hard to park. You know, and I'm, I'm just, you know, chattering away as I start to take my shower. And then I turn back and I happen to see him and he's looking at me up and down, which for those of you who've been in a, sh a group shower, at least for guys looking other guys up and down is a complicated mixed signal, right? <laughs> this is, this is, this is strange stuff. So I'm thinking, Oh gosh, what's going on. And so then he immediately says, you know, that is very good. You should really run more. You need to lose a lot of weight. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, God, now I got to talk to him about this, about making inappropriate comments to people in the shower. <laughs> and so we get outside the shower and I'm drying off. He's drying off. And I start to tell him and he gets it. Uh, he says, oh, I hurt your feelings. It won't happen again. And he's right. It may not happen again in quite the same way. It may be if I'm out by the scales or if I'm out by the locker, it's still fair game. <laughs> and it's not that he's trying to make fun of me. He's he's actually expressing concern. He wants me to lose weight. But um, it's that kind of thing that's so hard. Uh, now, again, some people are able to find great jobs, often in industries where the social demands are not so great. Um, you know, you don't want people selling life insurance or selling vacuum cleaners or cars. Computers are great. Uh, sometimes graphic design things great but you can find things that can be a really good fit for a person uh, i have one guy who does welding on submarines and he's fantastic because he just wow. loves doing the same thing over and over and over again and they all love him that's incredible i mean you know i'm, I'm hearing this but i'm also recognizing that these are individuals who have opportunities now because of all of the research that was done over the past 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And so, you know, one of the things I think about is what's the work, and I don't know, we don't have a crystal ball, right? But what are some things that we're doing now that are gonna be important for us in the next 10, 20, 30 years? I think a couple of things. One is we are doing more in early diagnosis. 
And that part of the reason for this real emphasis on work on infants and very young children, and I'm part of a project at Yale that's IMH funded, which is a great project. We're actually working with babies before they're born. And this is these are babies who are at high risk for autism because they have a sibling with autism. OK, so we're looking for the earliest signs of, of autism. And the reason for doing that past those sort of basic science aspects is we think, geez, if we could get in there and intervene even earlier in life, maybe we could prevent more of the difficulties that kids have. I mean, I, th I think it's a simple minded way to think about it. Sometimes when I'm explaining autism to parents or teachers, I say, think of autism as a social learning difficulty or a disability. So it's like a reading disability, a learning disability. It's a hidden disability. You don't look at the person and know, but it can be very severe. It can be really impactful. The problem for autism is because it starts so early, your way of learning about the world for everybody else is through people. You watch your parents. What are they doing? What are they thinking? What are they looking at? What's dangerous? What's safe? What makes them happy? Oh, I'd love to talk with them. I'd love to babble with them. And that all oh, that whole package of stuff that's missing or in some ways different in autism makes it a real challenge for learning. So, you know, you may be looking at the ceiling or looking at the hood ornaments on cars or doing other kinds of things, but you're not paying. People don't have that central focus in your world like they have for the typical, typically developing child. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. You, you brought up siblings. I want to go there for a minute. Um, you know, one of the things that's come that comes up a lot is when families are going through a diagnostic process, you know, they, they often think about how that impacts the whole family. Yeah. Do we know, do we know enough about how it impacts siblings and younger siblings in particular? Well, there's some very interesting stuff on siblings. And again, I think there's going to be more and more. It's a very exciting area. We know, first of all, if you've had one child with autism, you do have an increased risk for having a second child with autism. And we're now starting to be at the point where we can start to be somewhat informed by genetic testing of the child with autism. So maybe 10% of the so or so of the time when we do genetic evaluations of the child with autism, we may find a either a known or a possible contributory condition. So that's one thing. And then, this, then we can also look in siblings. One of the things that some of the research has shown us is that we've seen some... Um, typically developing siblings who, interestingly enough, on some of the, the wonderful research tasks that have been developed, they end up being kind of intermediate between in terms of their performance between their sibling with autism and a typically developing child. But they are themselves typically developing, if you can follow that. Yeah. So they may have developed compensatory means, uh, mechanisms that we need to understand better. But I think for them, them, the siblings to know that they, they also have a slight risk themselves of having a child with autism. It drops off pretty rapidly. And again, it's a complicated story given the genetics, which is very interesting and very complicated. But um, it's something that siblings need to know more about. And we need to support siblings. I mean, we run support groups for siblings at the Child Study Center where kids who are siblings can come and talk about their experience and really try to help them kind of integrate it in the context of their lives and their family and, you know, realize the complexities of having a brother or a sister with autism. I want to say that back to you to make sure I understand it right. So what you're saying is uh, if I have an older sibling with autism and I'm typically developing, I may still show some delays in my development. Not that I have 
autism or a related disability, but I may be I may be a little bit behind in terms of uh, in terms of typical it, development. It, it's interesting. It may not be so much delays as when we do some of our fancy things like neuroimaging, where we have people lie in a magnet and we're showing them things. For example, I have a former colleague of mine, Kevin Pelfrey, who's now at the University of Virginia, who does these amazing fMRI studies. So it's functional magnetic resonance imaging. So you can do it in kids, no radiation, it's magnets. And he will do things like having dots that look like people. And you do this the same way Pixar does. It's the dots that look like people. Uh, you put sensors on the joints and you have a person walk or do other kinds of things. And these sensors turn into points of light. And so most of us looking at these things will say, my gosh, that's a person because it looks like a person. It's, it's a set of dots that are cohering like a person. But what you can do is also flip that baby upside down. Then it doesn't look like a person, right? Well, for the person with autism, they may have trouble putting this all together. The interesting thing is some siblings, they can kind of be halfway in terms of how they're perceiving some of these very interesting, very sophisticated um, probes, as it were, uh, in terms of looking and at, in very complicated ways at how the brain works uh, and at parts of the brain that function, for example, looking at faces, which is one of the things we now know a lot about uh, and understanding what the differences are. So it's gotten to be a very interesting field in the sense that we can see both the genetics come into play, but also the neuroscience. And autism is probably the prototypic disorder for what's now called social neuroscience, because it's the, it's the one disorder where the social interaction is so central. And so we know a lot more about the brain basis of autism than we do of most psychiatric conditions and developmental conditions, for that matter. So it's got to be a very interested package of stuff, and it has implications for teaching. It's so interesting. There's so many, so many layers, you know, that, that just as you're describing it, I'm, I'm running through all the, the ideas in my head of how a diagnosis impacts not just yourself, but your siblings, your children, your nieces and nephews, your, your family, your extended family. Right. It's great to hear that research is happening, um, but it also is a, is a there, there needs to be a call to action for families to continue to push that research, right? And to continue That's exactly to right. And I think that for that, especially, and also for the adults, I think until we get more parents pushing for work on adults, we're just not going to see it. Um, and, you know, you have to put your money where your mouth is. And I think the federal government needs to fund more research on adults with autism. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. You know, I, somebody once told me you're, you're going to be an adult longer than you'll be an infant. And it, was, and, it, and it seems like such a simple statement, but it really is powerful. It's absolutely and, the case. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. of your career, Dr. Volkmer, you've been involved in a lot of research, uh, you know, national research, international research, I think you've been a part of. Um, but I want to talk about the uh, the book you have coming out this fall, right? Autism Spectrum Disorder in the First Years of Life. Can you tell us a little bit about that and who the audience is for it? Sure. Uh, this is a book that's written primarily for parents and teachers. Uh, it's co-written with my wife, who's a pediatrician, and she's been in practice as long as I have, several decades, and she had a special interest in taking care of children with autism. And part of my reason for getting her involved is she can keep me honest in the sense of when I start to go 
off on some very scholarly, abstruse, you know, intellectual jag, she can say no parent's going to understand that. And, you know, unlike many of my students who are going to be scared to tell me something like that, she'll just put it out there. And uh, so she's been a great help and she's very knowledgeable herself. So the two of us have written this book, which is actually a revision of a book we wrote about 10 years ago. And we're trying to bring quality resources to parents. And the reason we do it is to say, look, there's a lot of stuff out there, guys. Here's our review of these topics. You know, infants with autism, school age kids with autism, medical care of autism, diagnosis of autism. And here are some good resources to help people understand. These are things that somebody else has looked at and said, hey, it's okay. Okay, go look at it. Uh, and again, in this day and age where there's so much stuff out there, we hope that it's going to be a helpful guide for both parents and teachers to understand what's good intervention. How do you know if it's good intervention? What's evidence-based intervention? What's not? Um, how do you make choices about intervention? What does the law require schools to offer kids? Uh, so there's a whole range of information out there that we think parents really should know. And we try to do it in a, what we hope is a pretty concise but readable way. That's great. I mean, you've got topics in there about um, advancing technology, medical care, um, you know, long-term studies. Were there any of the any of the chapters that really stood out to you as either uh, one that had changed the most, or something that was like just really stood out to you as you learned a lot from it? Well, you know, the infancy one because there's so much work going on, and the intervention, the treatment one because again, there has been there's not as much work as treatment as we'd like, but there's more than there was. And there's more and better stuff coming out all the time. And it's not only drug treatments, it's behavioral treatments, it's educational treatments, uh, and it's new approaches. We've modified something called cognitive behavior therapy that many people out in the community, psychologists and others practice. Uh, we've modified that for people in the autism spectrum. And we know in individual populations for, certain, for normal, typically developing people, things like cognitive behavior therapy often work about as well as medications. And they don't have the risk of the medication. So um, there's new stuff out there. And I think that's the great news. Um, the, you know, again, it's spotty and varies depending a lot on the context. And everybody wants what they need for the individual person, which, of course, is what they want. But they have to look at what's out there and available and do the best you can of helping people align with good resources. That's great. And, and along that line, uh, you know, I have two two questions rolled into one. Where can people find this book? And the second part to that is where can people find additional resources that you've created over the years? Oh, sure. Uh, the book is going to be published by Wiley Publishing Company, which is a very old publishing company here in the U.S. Uh, so it's Wiley.com or you can go to Amazon. It's I think it's I think it's probably already now listed on Amazon for pre-order and you can search under my name and it's Practical Guide to Autism. Um, and so it's going to be available as an ebook as well as a hard copy. And the ebook may be better because it may be easier to read for those of us who are a little older, tiny print, tiny print. Um, it saves pages, but uh, easier on the old folks to read the Kindles. Um, but so that's, I think, um, where, where people can get that. If people are interested in more resources, um, the websites that I think we're going to put up in association with this podcast, one is the website website at Yale, which if you don't have it, I will send to you, which actually is lectures from my undergraduate class at Yale. I've taught for 30 years now, a course at Yale on autism. It's actually a very popular course. The students have a, have a seminar every week, and we talk 
about some aspect of autism. It starts with diagnosis and assessment. And we move into science and neuroscience and genetics. And then we move into legal and we move into family. Um, and each one of these lectures is online. It's on Apple iTunes as well as on YouTube. And if you type in Yale Autism Course, up it will pop and you will see me on the cover. A few years ago, I was down in Argentina with my wife for a meeting and we got a text from our younger daughter who was very excited. She was in college. She said, Dad, you're on the front page of iTunes. And it was autism, it was autism month and they were featuring that course. Uh, and again, we try to update these. Some of them are older, some of them are newer, but we try to update every couple of years, but they're free and they're Yale College courses. So it's high levels. It's, it's stuff that the, well, there's some quality to it. And the infancy one was relatively recently redone. So that's a good one. Um, the other resource, especially for teachers, is the other website that we'll put on the with the resources on the on the blog is at Southern Connecticut State University, where we now have a set of videos that we developed for teachers during COVID. So it's things like how do you approach the child with autism? How do you understand behavioral interventions? How do you use technology to improve education in, in schools for kids on the autism spectrum? So things like that, very practical and focused. And it's actually being translated into a number, I think something between five and 10 languages right now, uh, because we're distributing around the world for teachers, given the increasing interest in developing countries and providing services to kids with autism. That's great. And we'll make sure for any of you who are listening, uh, we'll make sure that those are in our show notes um, so that you can access those and we'll make sure we put them up so that everyone knows where they are. Um, Dr. Volkmer, thank you so much for your time today and just all the research you've been doing. It's just great to hear that there's research happening and it's ongoing and and it's great to just get a glimpse of it. We appreciate the work. You're well, doing. listen, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. I'm happy to do it. was such a fun conversation for me to, to be a part of. I hope it was a good conversation for you to listen to. One of the things that really stood out to me from Dr. Volkmer's perspective is the amount of progress we've made over the last 40 years. Sometimes it gets really easy for us to get focused on what's the next micro goal or what's the next thing we need to work on. But for him to be able to zoom out and discuss the progress the community has made on a macro level really puts into perspective how much progress we've made. When he talks about how he's seeing individuals with autism go to college and grow up and have opportunities that they didn't have 10, 20, 30 years ago, it's really just inspiring to me that so many people have invested time and resources and energies into getting us to where we are today. So I hope you can take a minute and just pause and reflect on that and acknowledge and appreciate all those who have, who have been a part of this journey for so many. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Autism Therapies. And if you have a show suggestion or other feedback, please send us an email at allautismtalk at learnbehavioral.com. As always, you can subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, take care. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. This podcast is brought to you by Learn Behavioral, the leading network of providers serving children with autism and other special needs. Visit us at learnbehavioral.com. Listen to previous episodes at allautismtalk.com on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time.